Sunday is not only the most important day of the Christian year, but also the first Sunday of a series of eight Sundays that ends with Pentecost. During these eight weeks, we celebrate the victories the risen Christ won for us. These victories are Easter gifts given to bring about the growth of a new people, gifts that continue to make us new today. So with shouts and songs of Alleluia, we celebrate the gifts of the risen Christ and present this sermon, recently delivered at Grace, to you. The first reading from the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5. This account is the basis for the sermon today. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade in the temple courtyard. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The word of the Lord. Christ is risen. Get a life. That's an expression that has slid into our American slang 20 or so years ago 
it has various shades of meaning. You can't just be living in your parents' basement and play video games every day. You're 25 years old. Get a life. In other words, start being responsible and productive. College is just not for studying and getting good grades. Get a life. In other words, stop being so boring. Meet new people. Try some new things. You're always sticking your nose into other people's business and offering answers to questions that are unasked. Get a life! In other words, mind your own business and be more caring and respectful. If you said, get a life, to me, you would be indicating that you think that my life and my priorities are out of whack and heading in the wrong direction. Usually that phrase, get a life, has just a little little edge to it, and sometimes comes across as rather harsh or rude. But can it happen? Can it happen that get a life can be spoken as a positive and make us pause and ponder what real life is, what it's really all about? Can we say to someone, get a life, and then actually mean we want them to have real life? Apparently so at least based on today's first reading, which I shared with you from the lectern in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5. God had the angels say to the apostles, tell people to get a life. Sadducees. When I was a little kid and heard about them, I thought those were people who had a sad life. Turns out, That wasn't so far from the truth. Not from their view, but from God's. When the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, sashayed past a mirror and glanced over their shoulder, they saw what they thought was a great life. They tried to look like the most spiritual people in Israel. After all, their job was to lead the Israelites in their worship life. Sadly, they were only going through the motions. They were more interested in making money than proclaiming the truth of God. We find out from the Bible and from other history around the New Testament era that the Sadducees didn't believe all the books of the Bible, only the first five, and really focusing on the rules given by God through Moses. They questioned the existence of angels and they flat-out denied the reality of an afterlife. To Sadducees, the concept of resurrection from the dead was a joke. That's why the Bible writer says they were filled with jealousy because right under their noses in the temple courtyard, the followers of Jesus performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Hey, 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 these Jesus people, do you see them down there in the temple courtyard? 
You see those Jesus people? They're attracting crowds with their sleight-of-hand magic. And do you hear what they're saying? They're claiming that there really is such a thing as resurrection from the dead and that this blasphemer, Jesus, whom we killed, is the first to do it. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. God had other plans. He sent an angel to set them free. So the next day, the apostles got scooped up again by the authorities, brought in front of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and questioned by the high priest, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This Jesus has overturned our lifestyle and our life. He's overturned our culture and religion. At least he tried to do that. His statements were outrageous, even blasphemous. That's why we killed him. And you, followers of Jesus, better mind your P's and Q's or you're going to meet the same fate. The apostles of Jesus, however, had God's command and support. The angel said, tell the people the full message of this new life. Okay, hang on a second. We're going to have to swing off the highway of this story into a little rest stop so that we can pause and get on the same page all together on what this means, this business of life. If someone poked you in the middle of the night, woke you up and said, give me a definition of life, you might start to scrape the crust out of your eyes and take a second to shake the cobwebs of sleep out of your brain, and then you'd probably say, well, uh, uh, it has something to do with with breathing and heartbeat, and and you'd maybe mention life is enjoying our existence in this earth, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God's definition of life is different. In God's view, life is relationships, especially a personal, close, loving relationship relationship with him. That is life. Death is separation from God, swallowed up by his anger. Life is being connected to God, surrounded by his love. You got that? Real life is being connected to our loving God, surrounded by his love. Now we're ready to swing back onto the highway of the story. So these apostles, told not to talk about Jesus, didn't argue, didn't point any fingers. They simply laid out the facts of real life, life connected to a loving God. They said, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. But God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You Sadducees think that you have a life, but you really have no life. Your life is headed the wrong way. You're headed to separation from God and eternal death. You talk about the God of your ancestors. Well, that God is the God of our ancestors, too. The only God there is, the true God, and this true God is the one who has sent his son into the world. Yes, you killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God brought him back 
to life. God raised him to give us deathless life so we could be connected to God in love now and forever. And, you Sadducees, here's some unbelievable and miraculous news. God wants to offer that life, that connection to him, to you. I don't like being identified with the Sadducees. I don't know about you. Probably not. They're like the bad guys, right? We believe just the opposite of Sadducees. We believe the Bible is all true, cover to cover. We know that God created the angels. We know there really is an afterlife. In fact, we are at the start, the beginning stages of a seven-week celebration that God will raise dead people because of the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there is, there is sadly one thing we have in common. There is one link we have with the Sadducees. Guilt. Maybe you're not feeling particularly guilty sitting right here in church today, but maybe you have in the past. And if you haven't, you probably will someday feel really guilty because our God makes it very clear that even one violation of his holy will means we are guilty before God. When a medical examiner finishes up the work, what happens? The medical examiner closes up the corpse, sews the Y-shaped scar on the chest, and what's left inside the dead body? Nothing but emptiness. Nothing but death. When we speak out of line and hurt people, when we twist a false neighbor narrative in order to cover our errors and blame other people, when we think of and get obsessed about money as the as the be-all, end-of-all of our existence, real source of happiness, then it's evidence of death inside. It's evidence of emptiness inside. It's evidence that we don't deserve to have a connection of love, life with God. But then comes the Easter announcement. And the Bible writer says, there's no condemnation, no being declared guilty for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks to Jesus, we are declared not guilty, even though we don't deserve it. Thanks to Jesus, we have life. The life that God gives, this real, loving, personal connection with God forever. So let's go back to ancient Jerusalem. We're walking down the street, we poke a stranger in the shoulder and say, can you point us out some Sadducees? Oh, they're pretty easy to pick out. They're the ones walking around in the Armani robes. And if you could look in their closets, you would see several neatly pressed linen shirts all in a row. You'd also see a couple leather jackets with the emblem and team colors of the Jerusalem Jets. Most of the Sadducees live in mansions on Caiaphas Boulevard. And if you could look inside those mansions, you'd probably see in each one a huge atrium inside the front door with bubbling fountains. I know, because I laid the pipe. And if you went by some of those mansions and saw the garage door open, you'd probably see a couple of steel-bodied chariots with a little silver jaguar perched in front. And you should see what the high priest uses to tool around town. Oh, man, his chariot's got an RR emblazoned on the grill. And if you think that's fancy schmancy, you ought to see the kind of food they have catered in. Ooh, are they ever living the life. 
We raise our hands. Okay, we get the picture. But while we're back in time in Jerusalem, let's also take a peek at the lifestyle of the apostles. Only Matthew, the tax collector, had a little bit of taste of the good life. The rest of the followers and apostles of Jesus were middle to low income folks. Some of, some of them, several of them, were fishermen. They could show us calluses and sunburn, and probably the old saying applies to them. Old fishermen never die, they just smell that way. And these are the ones that Jesus called to be his followers. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who could very easily multiply bread and fish or turn water into wine to feed and care for them every day. But he didn't do that. He only performed those miracles on very rare occasions. Instead, he called them to follow him, to leave their jobs. They very likely had to live hand to mouth, rely on handouts. These apostles weren't people acquainted with the inside of a mansion and flowing water fountains in a big atrium, but they, they knew what the inside of a jail looked like. If we could go back in time, which lifestyle would you prefer to live? The life of a Sadducee or the life of an apostle? The answer is obvious, isn't it? We want to live the life of an apostle. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? It was the Sadducees who lived like the rich and famous. But keep in mind, we want to live like an apostle because those apostles had real life and were really living. They understood Christian realism that we're only on this earth for a temporary, for a short amount of time and there will be problems and troubles which God uses to draw us closer to paying attention to him. They lived in obedience to the will of God. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Filled up with the love of Jesus, the risen Lord. They lived their life with courage and confidence. The angel had sent them back to the temple courtyards. And as they did, they began to teach the people, in spite of opposition. They had their priorities straight. We must obey God rather than people. And they had a purpose in life. They were able to share this message of life with God, a connection with God with other people. They were really living out their connection to God. Would you like to move away from fizzled dreams to Christian realism? Would you love to hear God announce one day to you on the last day, there is my child. The proof is in his obedience. The evidence is in her living. Would you like to live with more courage and confidence for your Lord? Would you like to sort out your busy schedule and get godly priorities? Would you like to live with a sense of purpose that in your lifetime you can actually connect with other people and hold them by the hand and usher them to the doors of heaven that are open because of Jesus? If you want that, then listen to your risen Lord. He gives us realism. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. He gives us this desire and thrill and inspires us to live for him in obedience. He says things like this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. He underscores our priority decisions in life and our purpose for life with other promises. Praying to the Heavenly Father, Protect my followers by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
If that's not a source of courage, I don't know what is. We not only have a life, a real connection with God that God gives, we have a life to live. If someone would ever come to you and say, get a life, here's how to respond. Thank you for your concern. And thanks for the reminder that I actually do have a life, a real spot in my relationship with my God. In fact, I can get you just that kind of a spot too, a relationship with God, thanks to Jesus. And when that happens for you, we'll be able to lock arms and walk down the street and say, we don't have to get a life. We've got a life, thanks to the risen and living Lord Jesus. Christ is risen. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support this ministry, please visit gracedowntown.org today. This grace is for you.